Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. to a bonus episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And we are very excited to be joined again for our first time guest, Josiah Martinoski. How are you doing, Josiah? Great. It's great to be back on Really True Fiction. Excited to uh, be in the uh, studio with you guys today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hilariously, we uh, actually attempted this entire bonus episode last week and recorded a full episode and then through uh, technical difficulties, we were unable to make any of it work. So if any of our insights seem extra prescient today, don't chalk it up to talent. Just simply <laughs> practice. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Although I, I am excited because I think we're going to have, we've had a whole week to think about it more. Exactly. Yeah. Well, really, I, I didn't record it because I wanted to spend more time with you guys. I just wanted to like chat with you guys. For oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> You know, it's like, um, it's one of those deferral of gratification experiments they do in psychology where it's like, okay, you've just recorded a full episode, but it doesn't work. How do you feel? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I can choose. I, I can mean, choose. I am actually quite happy that we get to spend this time together. Yeah. <laughs> I could choose one podcast last week or a podcast and a half of goodness this week. What do I choose? Exactly. <laughs> So this is a kind of follow-up to episode 73 of Really True Fiction when we talked about the novel Dune, which was almost a year ago now, like 11 months ago we recorded that. I think we recorded that December of last year. And we're doing a follow-up because we all saw the 2021 Denis Villeneuve uh, film. And Josiah, you've seen it twice now because you've seen it since our last recording, so that's pretty fun. Yeah. So... We usually, ah, shoot, it's been so long since we recorded. I forgot we sometimes, I sometimes start off with a joke question for David. So That's what, true. Um, <laughs> I don't know, David. Uh, I'll start off easy, David. How would you go about your hero's journey in the middle of sand? <laughs> I think I would ride the worms to victory, Luke. Ah, uh, okay. You know what? I bet you it's something like that in our original episode. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah we've all seen the film and josiah you've seen it twice david you just saw it once right yeah i've only yeah. seen it once so yeah, far, yeah me yeah. too josiah you being the guest uh why don't you start us off of your thoughts of the film dune yeah for sure i will i will try and keep my remarks brief because i know you both you both have introductory things you'd like to say too know. yeah i i guess i th- i don't know if we talked about it in the last episode but I think we were all pretty hyped for the movie after, I mean, Luke, after reading the book the first time for you and David and I rereading it. And like, I think we were, everybody, I think in large, the, you know, Dune fandom was, is, was pretty hyped. And I mean, I really, you know, 
there's lots of experiences of whether it's the Star Wars fandom or the Marvel fandom or, you know, all these different sorts of fandoms can be very critical of, of the uh, cinematic depictions of their, their beloved universes. And um, I, I haven't seen kind of such kind of a positive response to a, um, a depiction of a, of a novel that's so loved by such kind of a deep cult love in a long time. And so I don't know, I, I, my expectations were very high and the movie exceeded my expectations. And, you know, I watched it again. And I think sometimes we've had that experience where we watch a movie once in the theaters and we really enjoyed it. And part of it was just because we were in the theaters getting the IMAX experience. And that in itself is a spectacle that's kind of an emotional moving thing. And then maybe you watch it again. And I mean, I had that um, experience with uh, Avatar, you know, watching Avatar um, not to get too much on a tangent, but then it's like watching it again and it was a little disappointing. But I, my second watch of Dune, I enjoyed it, I think, in some ways even more because I was able to enjoy the pacing. Like, it's it's a movie that definitely takes its time doing what it does. And I, you know, there's certain aspects of it I really enjoyed. Like, and we'll get into all these different sort of aspects, but whether it was the visuals, whether it was the music, the score, um, Hans Zimmer, you know, bringing his A game, the acting, um, Denny Villeneuve's just overall direction and pacing. I think like there was a lot, there's a lot to be said about what really worked. And I mean, not that I don't think we should just make this a, you know, Frank Herbert love fest or a Denny Villeneuve love fest. Cause it was obviously a, a culmination of a lot of really talented people bringing different components together. And it just really, I think it just really worked really well. And I remember after the movie was finished, when I went the first time with my buddy Scott and we went to the theater and we, we were just like blown away and we were out in the, the uh, parking lot and talking about it. And then like other people who had just watched the movie were going to their cars and they just like had to, <laughs> had to um, gush about it a bit with us in the parking lot. Like total strangers had to talk to each other and just be like, this was awesome. So anyways, I, I would love to hear a little bit. I mean, I think we could spend quite a bit of time talking about different favorite things we enjoyed about this movie, but I'd love to hear a little bit of what either David or Luke, what you guys thought about the movie. First impressions. Uh, well, I'll let Luke go because uh, I know some of the things he's going to say. So, <laughs> and then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll cap it off. Yeah, it is funny, like recording for a second time, but like going to be an original episode for listeners because it's like a different headspace. But yeah, I would. I think it's been fun to have an extra week now to actually think about what I said last time because I think the reason this movie works, one of the reasons this movie works so well, is something I mentioned near the end of last episode is that I feel like the mood and the tone of the film is so like 110% authentic to the mood and tone of the novel. A little bit brooding, but not too much, right? Like a little bit angsty, but not too much when we're talking about Paul. A kind of like exploratory mm, tone and feel with the lore, with the Bene Gesserits, with the great houses. Like there's just something kind of mimicked by Villeneuve in his shots of Arrakis to how I, like if I was going to do the stoichiometry, how I feel reading the novel is mimicked in the in the shots of the planet and the ships. So I think that that is, and that is often what I feel gets under the skin of book lovers to a film adaptation of their beloved novel is like, uh, you just missed the feeling, man, Right. Like, I just didn't have the same flush feeling of, 
Lord of the Rings is a good example of one that does do that pretty well. Like the feeling of the movies is, or, or the feeling is mimicked well in the movies uh, from the books. There are lots of books that don't do that. I know a lot of Harry Potter fans feel like a, the movies don't mimic the, 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 what is that? The je ne sais quoi of the book kind of thing, right? Whereas I feel like this movie, Dune, did such a good job of that. And that kind of bleeds into every other part of the narrative of it. And the visuals of the technology we talked about last time are incredible. And I love how they were imagined. Like I said, a, a 2021 imagination of a 1960s imagination of future tech. Like that's just such a cool chain of reasoning to come up with like how you would visualize these really complicated technological things that are not how we would imagine them now right like i just love that connecting tissue again i don't even consider this a criticism of the film i consider it an observation of the difficulty of ad um, making an adaptation of a super interesting and dense book is that i feel like there were a couple characters who were underdeveloped in the film in comparison to their book versions and that's okay because it doesn't make the film worse and it doesn't make someone who doesn't know the book not like the movie but i wonder what it i'd be interested to hear from you two but also like anyone else who really loves the novel dune especially i felt that ua and thufer's characters in the movie were underrepresented as to them in the book so i think what i mentioned before was i would love to see one day in the future, a TV version of Dune that can maybe put a little bit more money into filming backstory and lore and uh, and not have to have the same kind of sweeping Denis Villeneuve epic visuals that we get in this, right? I think there's room for both. I think uh, it'd be interesting to see what they could put in more in backstory for a TV show version, but I loved the film i thought it was just a treat and it's only half the book but it's it, it was so cool and really fun to see how they brought it to life so yeah that's what i think opening up yeah i i loved what uh you said about it having the mood and i think that's something the mood and the feel or in a sense it's kind of like the soul of a thing right the mm -hmm. thing that makes that thing uh, what it is, right? It's you like know when it when you when see it. When you're really close friends with someone, and you and you get to be in their presence again, you just it's it's that thing that makes them them that you just so lo love having around. And I think when you really love something, you kind of you know it. There's a there's an intimate knowledge of it. And I I what I love about what Denny did with this film and what. Uh, let's say Peter Jackson did with uh, the original or the like Fellowship of the Ring particularly is they they you could tell that this was made by someone who loves the thing right mm. because because they pulled out what makes that thing special and in the case of Dune I think what makes Dune particularly special we talked about in our episode about the book was both the going into the grand scale of the universe and civilization and armies and planets, and then going really deep into the intimate moments, uh, which we'll get into later, uh, how they did Jessica or how they did Paul. And they, they captured that feeling uh, so well that I think 
when you I when I was watching it, when I got to the end, all I wanted was more. And it's been a long time since I felt that way about a movie, to be honest. Um, even actually the Marvel films, I've always really enjoyed watching them, but I didn't have that feeling at the end of them. Mm-hmm. Right? It wasn't that, oh, I just want to be more immersed in this world because it's filling me with with an, uh, a feeling of, uh, it's almost like a familiarity, but but it's like being around someone that you you love and uh, not in the uh, erotic way, but in the, you know, phileo way, mm-hmm. right? Where you're that 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 uh, communion of souls. So I, that was what I got from it. And then obviously the visuals, like I think Denny Villeneuve is probably at the top of his game in terms of, of making those happen. And like you said, Josiah, it's not one, it, there's no great man theory of history going on here. There's a whole team that he's put together. But I think his leadership on this was was phenomenal and i think the thing that i would add is when you when someone's able to capture what you imagine in your head on film and and there isn't a you know a cognitive disconnect where you're like oh that's not how i imagined it at all i think that's magic that's the magic of 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 uh cinema right that's what people go to the cinema for is to is this to see something not not necessarily that they have imagined but something that is like what they would have imagined when they were reading it especially in adaptations and i just think like the sandworms were so well done uh i was massively impressed by the sandworms the like like you said luke the technology was a little bit different in that sense because i hadn't necessarily imagined that way but when i saw it it's like that makes perfect sense and i love it and finally uh the visions i talked i talked about this a fair bit but it really made me think differently about how the perception of time works in the dune universe but also in our own and and what role that plays and i think that's what's best about sci-fi is it makes us think interesting thoughts about reality mm-hmm just seeing like a, another note on the like the tech or the visualization of all the tech in this is that um i i just enjoyed how much it reminded me of 60s and 70s visualizations of future technology so even like if you watch 2001 or other sci-fi type movies of that era the ships are like kind of blocky and kind of chunky <laughs> and kind of like not exactly aerodynamic looking and Dune managed to make them like a modern look of that concept. Like there, there, there are rounded edges on the ships. There, but they're big. Like, what, do they need to be that kind of like circular? The the uh, imperial ship that comes down. Like, it's just I just loved that kind of um, visualization of yeah of, oh, the, yeah, of the, the technology. Visuals, I mean, this felt like a. I, I mean, you you could tell that the, that the man who. Uh, envisioned arrival yeah. directed this film like he the visuals are mm-hmm. i would say they're even i can't think of a movie that had this powerful of visuals in the last five years mm-hmm. really you know what another movie it reminded me a little bit of not a lot but was um alien like some of the shots of the tech in alien is very like low tech now but it's an imagined future with all these blocky 
screens and stuff and i just i loved that seeing that in dune it was like oh yeah that's because this novel is from the 60s like it's it's very true in spirit again yes. that way to yes. how you feel it from the subtext of reading the novel of like what the ships are like and and the shields and all that kind of stuff but there's another thing you said in that david that i think an observation i made that augments that point of like something you love is that one of the things this film did so well, and I didn't bring it up last time, but I was thinking about it, because it's a visual medium as opposed to a narrative one or a, or a textual one like the novel, the contrast of the isolation is so good in this film. So isolation, I think, is a huge theme of Dune. The Atreides family is isolated from the other great houses or the Empire, or more from the Emperor and, and the Harkonnen families. Like, they're having to leave their home. There's an isolation feeling there. Paul's being... Uh, thrusted into this position of leadership, like maybe before he's ready, like that can be a little isolating to leave your comfort zone unnaturally, maybe. And then obviously, like Jessica feels isolated from her order. Then on top of all that, they are on this planet that is so inhospitable to life. So there's isolation even from like the basic functioning of their planet, Caladan, which used to be, you know, like a paradise. Yeah. So... And and the the version of the novel Dune I have is a has a character presumably Paul standing in this vast wasteland, right? So I just think I was thinking about this like the isolation themes. Of course, you need to rally so much more around those that you love and you trust, and maybe it even makes the betrayal all the worse kind of thing in this. So I wanted to throw that theme out there too of the theme of isolation. I think is done so well in the in the visualization of this. So. I'll punt it back to you now, Josiah. What do you think about all of that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one thing I I was thinking about just that on the note of what was really done well, I think maybe what hasn't worked in the two previous, like there was a um, 2000s uh, sci-fi TV adaptation, and then there was the David, the famous or infamous David Lynch adaptation. And I think what really worked with this one, among all everything else that's been said was, the way the lore was handled in the David Lynch version, famously, like there was a whole like cutout that people or printout that people got at the theater that had all the different planets, a glossary of terms. And then like the first, you know, the opening crawl of the movie is like them explain going into pure, like um, narration about what's going on and who's who and all that. And I mean that I can understand the appeal of a bit of that in the film. And there was a little tiny bit of that in, in this one but it can also like as far as like for a film goes you don't want it's better to show and not tell people all the time and i think this movie handled the lore really well that way a lot of things were explained in a way that it was shown like for example the shields you know that opening shield scene they don't go into a this is how the shields work and this is why they're using swords and they just kind of you see you know him and gurney fight it out and you get it's like oh when it's a little slow it it's red. And then that's, you know, red is immediately, we know that that means that that's danger. And I found like that. Um, I also felt like the, um, even the gum Jabbar scene, like there was a lot there that was very subtle, but it, um, you know, digging into it, it, I think it did, it gave, gave, so you don't have to be a fan of the book and you don't have to have read the book to enjoy that movie. And you're not getting inundated with all this details. And they really, and I, I think maybe it's a criticism of the movie that it's very distilled down and there's maybe a lot of the additional details of the story that's cut out. But I think 
for the, the you know, as you talked, Luke, earlier, there's a challenge to a adapting a novel, especially a really detailed novel, um, into a movie. And I think that is, you know, that is a way that Denny, you know, maybe there's a uh, Peter Jackson way of do doing it, and then there's a Denny Villeneuve way of doing it. And I, I think that that really worked for Dune. Uh, one other thing I thought they did well with the lore was um, the encyclopedia. When Paul, the couple scenes where Paul has his, like, Dune encyclopedia, and it's, like, the cool kind of... And it does have that sort of, like, almost 60s sort of feel of, like, the holograph, and it's, like, this British voice, and I don't know, I thought that was great. And then even kind of a bit of a segue was, um, you know, some details for a, a moment that should... Well, that they're putting, you know... They're putting work into it now, and it's going to have a big payoff later. Is when Paul chooses his name, which is Usul, which is a Fremen word for the desert mouse. And they, they, you know, in one of the scenes with the holograph, the desert mouse is there. And then Paul, that's even when the hunter seeker shows up. So then Paul is like the desert mouse because he goes into the uh, holographic trees. And so I don't know. There, there was a lot there. And I mean, even even how this movie handles the relationships with the characters, like. Yes, we spend a lot of time on Kaladin. You know, it's like, I think it's like half an hour of the movie is in Kaladin, which is, you know, in the novel, it's not that big a chunk of the novel is in Kaladin, but there's a lot there in Kaladin. A lot of the um, foundations being laid between Paul's relationship with his father. You know, there's, there's that heartwarming scene where Leto is telling Paul that all he needs him to be is his son and that, you know, he believes that he can rise to the occasion to be a leader. And, you know, you see Jessica, she has that, conflicted moment when she's doing what she's supposed to do as a Benny Gesserit and she brings her son Paul into this like life-threatening test but she's also a mother and she's like a nervous wreck you know sitting waiting outside hoping that Paul's able to pass the test and then there's of course you know relationships that you know the relationship that Paul has with Gurney and with Duncan and even and even a little bit with Yui I know like I know what you're saying Luke that Yui's maybe cut short a bit but like I think there was even, you know, both Yui and Thufur, there was work there to give them enough, I think, to at least, it's subtle, you know what I mean? Like, there's enough there to at least, mm -hmm. you you get that, you know, Thufur is like Peter DeVries. They both have that mark on their lip. They both have the blank eyes, like they're both uh, Mentats. So, anyways, that was a bit. I would love to hear either of you guys, if your thoughts about the lore or anything else you thought, kind of on that vein of what worked with this movie that maybe hasn't worked in previous adaptations. Yeah, uh, I I liked everything that you said there. I think for for me that I'll just like go on a personal on the things that I really enjoyed seeing. I thought that the shields were really well done. Uh, there were something you know something Luke and I've talked about with Star Wars that I think is very applicable to this. Is you know when you're younger, the technology and the cool fight scenes and the, like those are the kind of things that like really draw you in. And, and I remember being young and just being fascinated by the idea of these shields and how they just, that, that technology changed how humanity interacted in warfare and in protecting themselves and, and, and things like that. So I thought they did the shields really well. I completely agree with what you said, Jose, about them, just kind of spending that time on Kaladin. I think it was so important for the buildup of the film and actually plays into what just, or what Luke said about isolation, right? You felt Paul's isolation, even from his own family, you felt it, his isolation from his father. And part of that isolation, which I think is actually something I'd like to discuss just on a, a philosophical level during this episode, but part of that isolation is that 
Paul is aware of this path that he's on, right? And his father, his father essentially says, what have you done to him? He's changed. He's not the same. Why, why is he on this path? And I think, I think that's what was done really well, which actually I think David Lynch tried to do and didn't do because like you said, he was explaining things that's been tried before. And I think also when, when, that, when his Dune came out, you know, Star Wars had their little intro thing where they kind of introduced you to the story. He took it to the next level and tried to explain the story. I think you're completely right in the visual medium of a film. You want, you want to show, not tell. And frankly, I, I think, I think one of the things that they did the best at showing was what it would be like to be going down this path and how it, it was almost like, and I mentioned this in the last time, it was almost like a, a tree of life situation where you, you're, you're able to actually see the internal world of a person, but, but they don't make it different. Like, I mean, it's an arrival too, but it's these future memories, right? It's such a key part of what Dune is. It's such a, in my, in my mind, it's what makes Dune the most special of all the things is this internal journey with time and this, this dealing with time as humans and as civilizations. I mean, that's what Leto has to deal with in the later books, but it's what Paul's dealing with fundamentally. And the film really pulled that out and, and deals with, it deals with the, the depth of that topic without, you know, hitting us over the head with it. Mm -hmm. So I like, for, like just, you could tell that Leto, the, the original Leto, knows he's going into a very uh, precarious situation and doesn't really expect to come out of it. And what, is, what does that mean when a person does that? Why do they do that? Uh, and they do it for the people that they love, which is something we talked about last time that I'd love to get into again on, <laughs> on this one. But yeah, the, I'm kind of rambling here, but it, it goes back to what I said. It captures... Art, really good art captures the soul of something and really good adaptations capture the soul of really good art. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Josiah, that this movie, it does a great job of um, showing and not telling. And so maybe I'm contradicting myself here, although I don't totally think so. But I'm glad that they didn't actually go as deep into the lore and to the mechanics of everything as the novel does because it would have slowed the pacing down even more than it was. And this is a great movie, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's fast paced. <laughs> yeah, it would have like slowed it down all the more if we had all the conversations that happen in the book from between the Baron and all of the people the Baron talked to along the way and all of the stuff with UA and, or UE and uh, Thufur. Although I would have loved to see the scene with Thufur and Jessica in the movie, because that was one of my favorite in the novel, the kind of stalemate that they had. I would have loved to have seen that one, but that's okay. That's why I would love to one day see a TV show of this, like a 10, 12 hour, 14 hour version where um, it is a little bit more intrigue Game of Thronesy and a little bit less like visual stunningness that it is. Not that it doesn't have to be, but I only bring that up again to put it to bed for the rest of the episode. <laughs> um, because yes, this movie would have suffered if it had the amount of exposition, certainly like David Lynch's film, but like the book does, there's a lot of exposition in the book and it's enjoyable 
to read. But um, then to springboard to what you were saying, David, I think one of the strongest parts of this film is Paul's projections or visions yeah. or or um, visualizations of his future and how the first well one of the first times like it almost kills him because he's on the sand by the by the machine when it gets swallowed up by the worm it like it reminds me of donnie darko a little bit right like visualizing your future but then being back in the present to do something about it and like i I used arrival oh right 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 arrival yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the great twist of that film but the movie that I associate with this kind of storytelling motif is Donnie Darko because of all of the characters around Donnie that get this kind of like vision of the of a month beyond where they wake up at the end of the film because Donnie has time traveled and brought it all back, right? And so I love that idea of like projecting yourself into this isolated world now and how are you going to sacrifice to do well in it? And I think that that's one of the strongest parts of this movie is showing you every little bit of Paul's feelings and uncertainties and triumphs. You know, he's the main character, so you got to do right by your protagonist. That's like movie making 101 often. (laughs) And and this movie just did... Because Paul, we talked about a lot in our actual episode on Dune. Paul is such an intriguing character in literature, I think. Because he's like supposed to be 15, so he's like this adolescent. So of course he's kind of brooding, but he's quite talented. And he, but he, like he's a little arrogant. I don't know. He's just this movie was so good at capturing him. He's not your typical messiah. Yeah. Right. Uh, he did not. He doesn't begin that way. His hero's journey is not from you know rags to riches. It's literally from power to desolation to arise which i mean i had a friend who hasn't read the book who went and saw it and he says oh there's tons of biblical imagery here and i'm like yeah all the best stories have tons of biblical imagery (laughs) like yeah um but uh one of the things that that i i liked about it was that it is a bit of a twist on that and it's very obviously a twist right it's this you know privileged elite high high person who has to go and learn the lessons of suffering in order to become the leader that he needs to be as opposed to the, the more common perhaps uh way of going about it where it's uh you know it's the the commoner who rises to the occasion which is always something i've loved about dune is he always knew that that like greatness wasn't thrust upon him like greatness was his responsibility and he actually kind of sh- well, I won't go into what happens uh, later on, but <laughs> you know, it's 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 a real twist on it's a very '60s twist on these things, mm-hmm. right? Is how do you deal with these visions? But I think what we what we don't see as much in this film, and I think what we'll see in the next one is the stuff around the Fremen. But in this film, we it's about it's about what are you willing? What are you? What are you living for? What are you willing to what are you willing to go forward for? And I, I'd like to know your thoughts on that, Joe. Like, like what is when when we're when he's in this hopeless situation, right? Leto's in this hopeless situation. Jessica feels the hopelessness. Paul, Paul less so, but but he's got this hopeless feeling that he can't protect his friend 
Duncan and he has this vision of Duncan and he's like, he loves Duncan and he wants to go with him, but he, but he can't like there's, there's this sense of gloom and doom about the entire series. And yet our characters don't feel tragic. Even Leto doesn't feel tragic. What do you, what do you think it is about the story that brings that out? Yeah, well, I think that everybody, whether they, I mean, and you certainly hear conversations where they, they're pretty pessimistic. Um, and I remember, I think it was even in the trailer, I think it got cut out, but there was, in the Gom Jabbar scene, I think it was in an original cut, because in one of the trailers, it's like, the mother superior is like, she says, oh, your father's going to lose that planet too. Like, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. And, and you certainly see it, and everybody's kind of aware that it's kind of a foregone conclusion that the odds are stacked against them. Obviously, Leto, whether he's putting on a strong about face or whether he's just really believes in what can do. And there's certainly a uh, a uh, secret trump card that the, the Atreides are working on that will throw off the Emperor and the... Well, they aren't as aware of the Emperor, but will throw off the Harkonnen, their, their opponents. Yeah, no, I think, like, I think when it comes down to it, though, like, they all, you know, because both Jessica and and um, Paul have a kind of deep awareness of time, um, and that kind of goes back to, I mean, we won't, we don't have to go too deep into the lore, because I think that goes more into the novel, but, like, they both have this kind of Benny Jesuit power of being, you know, they get visions, and they know, you know, they have kind of this awareness of time and awareness of their past, and is it, so that's, that's part of Paul's Benny Jesuit training, and part of what's kind of been unlocked and, and what you're kind of talking about these visions. So there's an awareness of possibilities of the future, but I think what kind of comes down to it, cause like they are, there is that there's that side of it, but for both Paul and Jessica, there's another side of it. And I would say even Leto and some of the other people who don't even have that Benny Jesuit power, but it's like that awareness of knowing where things are going. And there's almost a fatalism towards that. I mean, we all know that we're going to die. If you could know the future, you would know exactly how you would die. Maybe that would make you more fatalistic. But I think there is a there's an element of agency in all of that where they care and they they care about the people around them. They care about the people that are in their family. And you know, so like Jessica is a bit of a conflicted character because she's a Benny Jesuit, but she's disobeyed the Benny Jesuit. She she loved Leto. She wanted him to have a son because obviously, you know, I, I think anybody who's vaguely familiar with how noble houses work you need to have an heir and and so uh she benny jesuit have the power to you know they're they're very powerful they can have the power to like choose what gender the child's going to have when they're they're born and so um she disobeys the benny jesuit and, and gives gives uh leto a son rather than a daughter the the benny jesuit master plan was for her to give a daughter and um she didn't so she's conflicted she does and even in that i talked about a little bit earlier in that dumb jabbar scene when Paul's being tested, she obeyed and she was going to block the door and nobody could go in to kind of stop this kind of ordeal that Paul went through. But she was also emotionally shaken and she was very much worried for her son. So she's not cold. And I think maybe with some of the other Benny Jesuit that you see in the show or in the movie, they come across kind of cold and aloof, but she's not like that. And I think same with Paul. Like he is a noble son, but he cares about the people that are, you know, the different lieutenants and people that are part of house Atreides and same with Leto. And that's, so they care about, they, they have this sort of love of their community and Leto, obviously I think he, you know, he's all in on this big gamble. He knows what's stacked against them, 
but his trump card is that he's going to work on building a relationship with the Fremen, who, in the intro, the first little bit of lore that you get is that the Fremen are being exploited, and that their planet's being occupied by these, you know, imperialists who are just squeezing the planet's natural resources, and the Harkonnen are killing them at, you know, at large, and so there, you know, there's kind of this level of oppression, and Leto wants a different relationship with the Atreides. I mean, he, I think the movies, you know, there's obviously something to be said that they are still, obviously, colonial overlords, but he's he wants to build an alliance with them. Um, and then, so, and then kind of going to Paul, you know, kind of to bring this all back together to what I'm getting at. So Paul knows, you know, his awareness. You see it throughout the film that he has an awareness and he gets these different visions of the future. And we even get that he sees possibilities because um, there's scenes where, you know, someone who he later duels Jameis, he duels Jameis at the end, but he has, there's scenes where Jameis is teaching him how to be a Fremen. So he's, he sees different possibilities of the future and he certainly sees lots of visions of Chani. And I think that, you know, there's a point where he chooses, you know, it's kind of, it's almost the, uh, you know, maybe the duel was kind of the, uh, the apex or the kind of conclusion of the movie. But I think in a way, even his choice at the end after that duel, where he has a choice to either do what his mom wants to do, which is for them to go off planet and to go seek, uh, justice through this, uh, imperial parliament of all these different sorts of noble houses and deal with the political stuff there but he decides that no he's going to stay in dune and he's going to stay there and i think that the reason why he chooses that i mean it's all built in is all these visions of the fremen it's like he just meets them but he just met them but he already knows them because he's he's seen all these visions and so these are his people and he loves them and he's gonna like he's gonna be there and fight with his brothers in the sand to get their planet back so I think that's I think that's what you're like what you're kind of talking about, David. That yes, there's an awareness, and maybe that's what makes this such a relatable story. I mean, it was written in the '60s, but I think in the 2020s, there's certainly a great deal of anxiety about the future. You know, there's a number of different problems that we're tackling, maybe more immediate ones, maybe more midterm or longer term problems, and so there's there's certainly I think with a lot of people of all ages, there's an anxiety about the future. But I think part of what makes this such a strong or such a powerful story is that we're reminded of kind of why we fight and why we, why, why we keep going. Right. So it's a story as old as time. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things you brought up there, Josiah, that just occurred to me, maybe we talked about it in our Dune episode or not, but um, there's a parallel between Dune and movies like Avatar or Fern Gully, where there's, this kind of indigenous group of people who live on a remote planet or a remote place and they're being invaded or at least colonized by some group who are interested in the financial and, um, um, you know, the the resource-based of their area. Now, Dune is a lot less cartoonish than Avatar or literally less cartoonish than Fern Gully because what I really like about that how that relationship develops is that Stilgar, the the leader of the Fremen, is able to to differentiate between different kinds of houses that come, right? Like he to him, the Atreides are not like the Harkonnens, and that's an important feature. It's not like an across the board sort of like we hate all of the people who come here. And part of that is because, I mean, we don't get a lot of the Fremen in this movie compared to like their totality in the story. But part of that is because the Fremen are actually 
in a sense, doing better than the colonizers, right? Like they they have a kind of different life order that allows them to live more symbiotically with their environment. And I guess what I like about that motif in Dune is that it's not kind of like ideological or ham-fisted where it's like, it doesn't necessarily merely glamorize the Fremen as the straight up good guys and the ho- the great houses as the straight up bad guys. Like it's more nuanced and complicated than that because um, the Fremen do have some rituals that probably are antisocial <laughs> to say the least, not to mention they're um, not egalitarian social hierarchies all the time, right? So it's not like, it's not like Frank Herbert portrayed the Fremen as merely the um, defeated and noble folk of Arrakis who have been purely taken advantage of. Like he gave, he gives the Fremen a lot of agency. And I, that's one of my favorite parts is the amount of agency shown by the Fremen. And they're kind of like, again, this is a whole different topic, but like they're mystical <laughs> interpretations about the world and how Paul manages to <laughs> very nicely for the narrative meet all of those. So... <laughs> that's that's good for him and and the story but i just i enjoyed that um more nuanced take on the kind of like great houses colonizing arrakis and the indigenous people who live there and the kind of way that they figure out how to live with each other ideally more integrated right like that was something that i thought a little bit about this time around yeah i i've been thinking a lot about environmentalism actually lately and 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 hope and Hmm. we talked a little bit about this in the matrix faith and what is what does it mean to what do what are we living for what are what are people aiming towards and and one of the things that i i i love about dune and i i i agree with entirely with what you said luke about the realism of the fremen as opposed to like this idyllic utopian like yeah one of the things i don't like about avatar is that it's so black and white and one of the things that Mm -hmm. i've been realizing as i progress and luke really helps me with this in the in doing this podcast together is no longer looking at things as simplistic but realizing that when you zoom in on like the top right quadrant of a square that's been cut into four pieces well you can cut that into four pieces and you can you can drill into the complexity of a thing and the more complex you can make something i think in a lot of ways the more beautiful it becomes and i think the reason for that is because that's what really makes something beautiful is if it has symmetry but it is complex and so for the fremen yeah maybe they're this warlike tribe who demands the death of the chieftain by by a subordinate almost like a a pride of animals or a pack of wolves in order to be in charge and and yeah paul has to push that aside saying no i'm not going to kill all my best men to have new leaders <laughs> like that does that's not what i need right now yeah. uh that's in the book not in the, obviously in the that's in the bad movie. strategy <laughs> that's bad strategy but but then on the other hand like what is it that keeps the fremen going in this place Right. And and we it's it's alluded to so quietly, but well done about the planting of the myths by the Bene Gesserit on Dune. And so there's these that you referred to, Luca, there's these myths that have been created that Paul's able to use for, you know, his own purposes. Uh, Funnily enough, though, if you think about it, the future that he's trying to avoid 
is only possible because of these myths being planted. But that we maybe we can talk about that in a second. But what I what I find so fascinating is the Fremen believe in a future that that humans are creating, right? Where uh, like they they don't believe that Arrakis is just good the way it is, right? They they, they what do they want? They want to make Arrakis more livable for humans. It's their home. They love it. They've they've learned to live in harmony with it. But it's not just about living in harmony with it and leaving it the way it is. They want to bring life to Arrakis, right? And I, and I wanted to know your guys' thoughts because lately I've been thinking that is a that is a radically different perspective than one we really are encountering in the modern era with in, with certain elements of environmentalism. And why I think that's interesting is because Jordan Peterson just had a I guess a reformed progressive environmentalist onto his podcast who is is talking about this apocalyptic language that's being used around environmentalism and he's like and biodiversity and all of these things and he's like you know you can make something more bio like have more biodiversity but then that could be bringing in um you know species that aren't native to the area that could like take over and destroy the the local populations or or all these things like things aren't as simple as black and white and it's interesting that we have in dune these not idyllic people but these you know the good guys quote unquote who are looking to transform the natural order of things into a more hospitable place for humans as opposed to be what we seem to be living in right now in this zeitgeist which is humans are the problem and we need to you know we need to make the world not less hospitable for humans because obviously we need to deal with pollution and 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 global warming and things but the fremen are living for a future that is better for humanity and they're working towards that together and they're sacrificing and suffering for that and that gives them the ability to get through these hard times because they have a a vision of what the future could be and they're all working towards it. Do you guys think that our modern environmental movement is providing that kind of future? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's different ways that you can look at that. And, and yeah, there's certainly, I think there are some, there are certainly some people that are very like honed in on a very specific view of what the world is supposed to be. You know, like they're kind of, they're almost wanting to, they, they almost want to kind of, it's like this focus, like ever since human beings have been around, you know, for the thousands of years, like we've impacted the environment, right? Like we are, I mean, I, I remember you guys kind of talked about this in the, your last podcast about uh, the matrix, you know, the, uh, where agent Smith calls humanity a virus. And that's obviously a very nihilistic or a dark way of looking at human beings, but we are unlike, even though we're, you know, animals in some ways, we're unlike all the other animals because we will change everything no matter what we do. And I think Dune, you know, I, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to kind of go into the novel a little bit, but like in the novel, yes, that is this kind of grand plan is to terraform the planet and unlock all the water. But the more you realize, the more you learn about the planet is there's lots of water and it's, it's because of the worms life cycle that they're trapping the water and the water is actually toxic for the worms. And so, 
by turning the planet away from being a desert, they actually killed the worm, a lot of the worms, and the worms almost all completely die off and stuff. So I think there's a, you know, I think that there is, and, and I think this is true about environmentalism, right? Like, we can go one direction, you know, like tree planting. Like, you can plant a bunch of trees, but it might be a monoculture. There might, you know, there's different, I think, depending on what we do, we're going to get different sorts of results. And even, like, the oil and gas industry, right? Like, big culprit of global warming. But it's also led to massive reforestation because people aren't burning wood in their stuff. So, I don't know, I don't necessarily have a kind of succinct answer to your question, Parker, but I think that the theme of Dune and the theme, uh, you know, there it does, it touches on this or resonates with me about this thing that there's there's trade-offs to different things we do to the world around us. And I, I think the biggest tragedy or the biggest danger is that we're, if we're totally unaware of what we're doing and the cost. And, you know, we could even go into, and I won't, we could even go into like solar panels and all these, there's all these different things that we're doing that are yeah. very high-minded, but there's cost to it. There's cost to anything we do, so. Yeah, I guess, um, I'll bracket off like whatever group of people, probably small, but maybe vocal that are just like dyed in the wool ideological environmentalists who humans can't do anything right. Uh, and capitalism is the devil and we've destroyed the world and the best thing we could do would be to go extinct. Like, I don't mean those people, no. but I think for the rest of us, conserving the environment as best as we can is just a good idea. Even if there wasn't climate change on the horizon, not messing up our environments more than we have to for kind of a good standard of living for as many humans as possible. And again, like that's very broad. That can, where you draw those lines is, you know, the job of negotiating politically and with experts, right? But I think it's not a bad, like, north star to be working with in terms of like ambition and goal like we certainly don't want to be doing more damage than we have to to power our cities and you know make our cars work and that kind of thing and i think that that i think that there's a lot of space for good faith human flourishing perspectives from all over the political spectrum for people who want to live in cleaner cities nicer parks less massive forest fires that are now making Nelson a smoke haven for six uh, weeks uh, every summer. Now, again, that's not entirely climate change. Like a lot of that is things like, uh, have we done a good job of clearing underbrush and um, what can we do? Unfortunately, the hysteria often makes the news for other reasons of <laughs> what are incentives in news media now, which I think is part of this problem, which I think is also part of every social problem we're having in our world right now is how the media has incentives around it. But from a psychological point of view, I guess I would want to raise the question to anyone who has a strong feeling around environmentalism is that do you hold your strong feelings around environmentalism because you want to make the planet better for people or because you really fucking hate people who drive SUVs? Because I think right. that that is a huge component to this issue that is also a component in every issue. I think one of the most avoided topics in the world is resentment and what we're actually being motivated by similar to if you if, if any listener out there hasn't read 
Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell. I couldn't recommend it more. It's the it's a nonfiction of him going to northern England and like spending time with the coal miners and like actually being on the ground, walking a mile underground, figuring out. And he's got this great chapter in that book on the socialists. And he says basically the socialists have betrayed socialism. And uh, because he was a socialist, but he was like more on the ground type, right? And he was able to amend his political uh, leanings based on reality and things he was seeing that was happening, especially during the Spanish Civil War. But anyway, one of the enduring lines from that is from Orwell is that the socialists don't love the working class. They just hate the rich, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do we want to save the planet or do we just hate people who drive SUVs? If you don't think you can't be motivated by hatred towards some outgroup, I don't think you've read a book. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that if we want to actually start maturely handling environmental degradation and climate change, which I think every caring and ethical person wants to, we got to get over that part of it that that's just got to be left out. We can't we can't hate people who think differently than us. Just because someone doesn't have the exact same opinion as you on a problem doesn't mean that they should go straight to hell. And I think that area is infecting in the environmental movement to a degree where it is kind of anti-human. Uh and maybe that's what you're trying to fish for, David. <laughs> Uh, I don't yeah, I don't want to put it in intention or motivation. That's what I see. I think that, like I said, there's so much room for good faith improvement and dialogue in this sphere. Bad faith and resentment, not welcome in this conversation. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's one of your my favorite lines by you, which is the highest common denominator, right? How do right. we how do we move ourselves to the highest common denominator? Mm-hmm. But what I've always admired about the Fremen, and I think like at the beginning of this, I was talking about how there's a soul to things and there's a there's a beauty to, to that core, whatever reality that is being expressed through art. And and I think the art of the Fremen, the art of the, the tale of the Fremen, and then the thing that we're lacking perhaps in, in modern, at least in the, in the zeitgeist, I'm, there's lots of people who have it, but they want to build something. And they want to build something that will last and they want to build something in a in a place that they love and they have a purpose and a and and therefore they can not only suffer which they do deeply right they can they can go through suffering in hope of the future but also that suffering has purpose now the suffering now has meaning because it's suffering towards something and I think that's kind of what the environmental movement is lacking. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of the opposite of that guy who went on Jordan Peterson's show, like in the sense that I've been very, and still I am to some degree, like very pro oil and gas and that sort of thing. And haven't really taken, I didn't, earlier in my life, I didn't take, as Josiah knows, it probably took me longer than it should have to take climate change seriously. But you know, environmentalism is such an important part of Dune. I think we would be remiss to not talk about it. And when I when I think about it, like the heroes of Dune, in a sense, are ecologists, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. And 
And when I think about it, I think the, the problem with the environmental movement right now is that they do not provide some some future to work towards that is desirable for humanity. And, and so when they're asking people to suffer through things like the carbon tax or things like you know, reducing our quality of living or, or you know, or take or as simple, something as simple as sacrificing some of your time to split up your recycling for whatever reason, right? Because because that's going to make things easier on the planet. They're not giving people a reason to do it in a positive sense. They're only giving them the avoid this horrible negative future. And I don't think that is enough to, to give suffering meaning. So I guess I'd I mean, the, the, the Fremen are kind of like, I, I, I hold them up as this, I would argue, really kind of archetypical example of how suffering can, can be a positive and turn you into a strong, purpose-filled people. And I just wonder, how can we achieve that as a society? Because right now, and Luke, you and I have talked about this a lot, we elevate victims and, and you and I've talked about this too, Josiah. And we, and we, we glorify victimization and the victims are kind of uh, the saints of our modern society and suffering is always something that is unfair and imposed by others on us and is, is, is an inherent moral evil. Whereas that's not the story of Dune, And I, I don't think that's the story of life itself. Hmm. Yeah. Something I was thinking about is that, I, we love the Fremen and the Atreides, but I, I think the the house or the world that is maybe not... I mean, it's like our world, but maybe amplified. And if we just keep going down an aspect to the way we live now, it's the Harkonnen, right? Like, they are a people that are driven by their excesses and their appetite. And, you know, what's the quote? Squeeze, Rabin, squeeze harder. And that's... I think that's our approach to... The world we live you know right now we just we're trying to we're very short-sighted we're just trying to extract as much and a lot of it is based off our consumerism and i mean obviously this is something we've all heard and i mean maybe it's not maybe new to anyone but i think that's definitely what denny Villeneuve's going for with with kind of on that environmentalist motif but also what frank herbert was going through going for too is that there is something and even just like the even the baron you know he he doesn't walk he floats around because he's, you know, he is such a glutton that he can't walk anymore. And I think that there is, there is this sort of, I mean, he's, he's almost a metaphor through kind of a way that we, we, you know, we push away suffering and we, we um, are drawn towards our appetites and our excesses. And, and in doing so, we, you know, we compound our problems. We make things worse. You know, when you contrast, not that you get very much time on GD Prime, but Giddy Prime is not a nice place. I'd say it's uglier and probably worse than than Dune, even though Dune is was a tougher place to start with than Giddy Prime or any of the other planets. So I think I yeah I think there's something to be said that that sort of mindset that we have isn't working for us, and so we we can either I guess we're you know we have very much a choice. We can either con continue to ignore our own internal problems and the problems with and I think that's where we have to start. But then obviously kind of the larger problems in the world, we can continue to ignore things or we can start to deal with things in our own lives and deal with things in our community and the world at large. And it's going to be hard. And But I think there, I think you're absolutely right, David. I, I, 
I think that's what makes the Fremen so archetypally like people to admire is that they they embrace the world that they're living in. They're not ignoring it. They're very much in tune to the suffering that they live in, but they they work with it. They don't completely work against it, and they're they're able to overcome. And I and I don't know. It's very relatable, I think, to some of the stories of you know some of the the ge- few generations up. You know, some of the people things that some of my grandparents and great grandparents and their their parents did. You know, the things they did to kind of make things work. Largely, I come from a lot of people who were farmers of different kinds and the kinds of things they went that they did and the kind of their stories, they were strong people. They were tough people. And I think that our, the way we live right now and the way we, you know, we aren't making people strong. I, I don't think, I think the the people that are alive today, we're, ju- we're just as capable of being as strong as those people were, but we're not, we're not enduring enough um, challenges in our life. I think we've made our lives very easy. Yeah, there's always feedback mechanisms <laughs> based on what we put into our lives. I like that you brought up the Harkonnens, though, Josiah, because that made me think like the Harkonnens are in Dune what make something like the environmentalists have a good point, right? Like we certainly don't know exactly what the right kind of like equilibrium is for resource extraction to human flourishing, but it's probably not the way the Harkonnens are doing it. It's probably not pure sociopathy and murdering everyone and like extracting every little bit of value out of the tragedy the commons that you can and then get out while you're still on top kind of thing like that that almost seems below zero sum contrasted to the fremen like the harkonnens are a good kind of like balancing point to see what that more like mr smith nihilistic hedonistic take on um, a way of being could be, right? And so, like, to that extent, they represent, like, well, I don't know exactly how we want to do oil and gas, maybe. Maybe I don't know the perfect answer, but I know we don't want to do it like that, right? Because of of how, like, short-sighted and manipulative and, um, like, sociopathic they are in their, like, <laughs> the Harkonnens are not the paradigm of human life flourishing, um, that the Fremen hope to reach one day. So that's why there are villains, right? Like it's a perfect, I was going to say like why the villains are the villains in Dune is not because they're flawed, because all of our heroes are flawed at some level or make errors or have mistakes, but it's because they're basically sociopaths. <laughs> like other than maybe the emperor who's also got that. But anyway, that's like the next movie. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But I was thinking about it, like how uh, the, um, if you if you analyze this story through the environmental lens which i think is really worthwhile to do we don't necessarily champion oil and gas because it's oil and gas we want to champion it because it makes people's lives better through creation of energy right so i guess what i'm saying is it's possible to also accidentally or subconsciously valorize the other side of it potentially or like making oil and gas itself some sort of like deity or idol to be like this is what we are maybe wrap your identity well no oil and gas is great because of what it does for humans not because it is oil and gas per se if you see what i'm saying that's why problem solving or different trade-offs can be useful like okay oil and gas is a huge contributor to uh, global warming what about our nuclear options (laughs) like things like that 
right? And then again, you start to see, okay, are you interested in finding a solution to climate change or do you really hate people who work on the rigs? Yeah. Kind of thing. Do you hate people who make a lot of money off of something? But then also you can find out a lot about the people who are bringing energy into the world to help humans and make a good living along the way or who are greedy corporatists who just would rather squash out competition of other energy forms that have some sort of cost effectiveness to it simply to keep their Harkonnen floating foot on the throat of the world kind of thing. Like, cause that's a possible scenario that isn't necessarily happening now, but isn't out of the realm of possibility, I would say. Right. Oh, I, I well, I would actually say that that has happened a lot. Like I, I was just going to say, or to flip it on the other side, do you actually think that, Humanity has no impact on its environment, or do you just really hate that annoying sixteen-year-old girl from Sweden? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, I think it, it goes both ways, right? Like I think the people on the other side are very much motivated. Like that tribalism kind of goes mm-hmm. both ways, you know. So yeah, no, and and I think that's one of the things that Dune captures so well is again, I wish we would get away from the. We, we need to, like, what is it that makes the Atreides noble? Why do we love the Atreides? Why are they the good guys in this? Or or then again, or, or the Atreides, you know, over the Fremen, why are they the good guys? And I think it comes down to uh, what we were talking about earlier, which is what are the things that motivate them to go into the future? The things that seem to motivate the Harkonnen are power, wealth, uh, and hedonistic pleasures, right? Mm-hmm. We see a lot of hedonism. And and this is what's being held up in Dune as evil. What's held up as good is transmuting suffering into strength, um, loyalty, love, right? These are these are the timeless virtues that that's, we need to be getting back into our culture. And I think maybe that's why I love watching Dune so much because it's, it's a better maybe story for the framework of our times, right? And spice is a metaphor for the Middle East, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> what really I think is happening in, in the story is saying, what are, what are the values? What are the truths that, we, that, that, that you should use as a guiding star for your life? And one of them that I think we've lost that Dune has a really good handle on is you know, suffering produces character and character hope, to, to quote a, a really old book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just going to say on the theme of loyalty, I was just noticing that Paul or that the Harkonnens abandoned the Baron when he gets poisoned. Like he he um, gets poisoned and they close the door. The soldiers are just like, OK, <laughs> like we're not going to die with you. Whereas in contrast, the Atreides are there, like those, those guys are like there to the end, right? Like, best example, Duncan Idaho, like sells his life so that Paul and Jessica can, you know, get out. And so I think, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said, like kind of what you were saying a little bit earlier there, Parker, about the virtues and stuff. And I think virtues aren't necessarily innate. It's not that those people are intrinsically better morally people than the than the um, Harkonnens or, you know, the Imperial Sadaqar culture, but it's, it's culture, right? Like culture, I think that's maybe one of the lessons of Dune is that culture can either promote virtue or celebrate vice. 
and human beings, we need, we need, uh, you know, we need habits and we need other people around us to push us towards virtue. And I think that's, you know, the Atreides, there's a culture that promotes that. And so that's why they are loyal. The Harkonnens do not have that culture. They have a culture that pushes them towards vice and cruelty. And so when push comes to shove, they're all free agents and they don't care about their leader or anything like that. So. Well, it's interesting, like, uh, just on a, on a, on a sort of, on a sort of side note, it's like one of the, I love that just pulling out the, the, the culture matters and that the kind of culture that you're a part of is going to result in your success over time as not just an individual, but as a group of individuals, right? It, the Fremen don't think of the future as my future. They think of the future as our planet's future, our future. And in doing so, they 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 become strong, the strongest force. And I was looking at a, a very interesting uh, graphic that was shared on on a group chat that, that Josiah and I are part of. It showed the United States in, in 2100. And Mormons and Amish people were making up the majorities in a number of states, like a lot of states. <laughs> Why? Because they're having children and that their culture is inherently stronger than, than this myopic, let's call it sociopathic culture that, you were, that you're mentioning, Luke. It's in the end, the strong cultures went out. It doesn't matter what the critique of those cultures are necessarily there are certain principles that align you closer with reality than others. And I think we need to get away from this notion of discussing some weird abstract utopias and start talking a lot more about what is and what actually works. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe one of the things that we can all agree on that is like Dune does is that, you know, consciousness, human consciousness is a thing worth preserving and that it's the most valuable and important thing on the planet. And that that's that our focus should be on maintaining an environment that can cultivate that for the years to come more so than in, I would argue anything else. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Something we talked about uh, last week that was lost. And I think we should probably talk about a little bit again from the film was another one of my favorite parts was the dynamic of Paul and Jessica's relationship and how emotional Jessica was in the film. She was, she was like, I could tell she was feeling in the book, but the movie really hammered it home with her, I thought. And I thought Rebecca Ferguson just did such a good job of portraying her. And in the book, the, the kind of like a, a lot, a large part of the emotional core of the book is Jessica and Paul, especially post betrayal. And I even forgot, we didn't even mention it last time, like Jessica's pregnant again. And I think she has a daughter. Is it? I think she has a, a so like that's also going on. Like that's pretty intense. And um, Paul having to get into his survival skills and his. Have either of you seen Taika Watiti's film, The Hunt for the Wilder People? No. Oh, you have to. It's so good. It's it's so funny. It's the guy who directed, you know, Thor Ragnarok and What We Do in the Shadows and Jojo Rabbit. Anyway, he's got and it's Sam Neill and it's like the back country of New Zealand and they talk about how Sam Neill's character, the adult is talking to a kid and he says, "You know what you got to learn? You got to learn the knack. The knack is the thing that lets you always know what to do when you don't know what to do." <laughs> <laughs> you got to develop the knack 
And one of the cool things about Paul is that he develops the knack, right? He develops yeah. that thing that allows him to figure out what to do when he's in trouble, when he's in a crisis. And part of that is his training with Jessica, and part of that is his training from his dad. And he marries, like, one of the ways you can think about Paul is he marries diplomacy on the physical and the political with the kind of mystical and the imaginative and the creative from the Benny Gesserit, right? So he's got both of those literally in him. So I open that up to that kind of dynamic that I, they're obviously great characters on their own, but I find them so good and compelling together as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought Rebecca Ferguson, like she stole the show as far as acting, like the, all the, like, I think there was a lot of good acting all around, but I think her performance was just like really good. And I think she, she made me see, look at Jessica in a way that I hadn't really seen her character before and um, made me like, Jessica in a way that I like, I don't know. She's just such a good, like she, she had such a good balance of being such a strong person, but also having that sort of emotional vulnerability. And she obviously, that is very much, you know, we all have mothers and we all seen mothers and how mothers love their, their children. And there's just something really kind of strong there. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I really, I loved, I agree with you that I, that was probably one of the th relationships that I loved the most was, it was just that, that parental relationship and like every little moment she's trying to teach Paul something. And then the thing I, you know, my second watching that I noticed at the end was the last shot is her looking. So Paul is finally walking with Channy. Like that vision is being realized. He's walking with Channy. He's walking with the Fremen and, and Jessica like looks at it and there's like, I, you know, it's like this moment of admiration. And it's also this moment, you know, like that I think a, a lot of parents have where it's like, their child's growing up. They're not the. They're maybe not as big of a yeah. deal anymore. But that's a credit to their parenting that they're. You know, she has trained Paul, and now Paul is. You know, he. You know, not that. You know, a few minutes before he told her no, he said we're gonna stay on Arrakis, and so I think that that's something I really like about her relationship is that she's teaching him and she's training him, but then she lets him be a man. She doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't try and overpower him. She lets him lead, and yeah. Yeah, I um, I've always really liked the character of Jessica, and one of the the, I mean the, the one of the disappointments of this movie, I suppose, is that I wanted the next one right away, right? right? Like, I, there's so much that that I want to see now, and that I enjoyed um, reading about, but. But the the thing the one thing that the movie can't do is go into that into those internal dialogues to explain kind of how a Benny Jesuit views the world and, and stuff or stuff like that. So that would have been really interesting to have. But I completely agree with you. The acting was was next level and 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 really showed really brought the character to life in a way that I I hadn't I hadn't anticipated to be honest. I, I was really looking forward to seeing the technology and I was really looking forward to seeing how the story got told, but I didn't think I would enjoy how well the characters were acted as much as I did. But it, honestly, there's almost no comparable except for, for um, Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> like when you watch Fellowship of the Ring, you're like, that, that's the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like not that many other huge books that became huge movies like this. There's probably some, but see, even Harry Potter, 
Harry Potter's scope is different because so much of Harry Potter is a moral adventure and yeah. it's so setting based and a Dune is setting based too, but there's a melancholy and a kind of meditativeness to Dune, whereas Harry Potter is quite an active story. And so, yeah, like, so Harry there, Potter is an adventure story. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily want Denny Villeneuve making a movie like this for Harry Potter. Right? No, like, he's no, just like no. booming score. Take, I mean, it'd be cool to see Hogwarts like that, but like you need so much fast-paced kind of um, feel to it. So yeah, like it's just something f- kind of funny about how uh, that translation from the novel really works for this like type of you you would want Danny Villeneuve to make this movie even if he wasn't right like that would be the first person that would come to my mind if someone said you know five years ago who pitch a dune movie who directs it I'm like well it's a pretty wide open space you need someone who has great visuals well that's yeah. what you would get to do there, right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing so it's it's perfect yeah any other movie stuff uh, one thing I would note I that I like learning a little bit about how this movie was made was that Hans Zimmer, um, I guess Denny Villeneuve had reached out to him and he didn't really like, according to Denny Villeneuve, he didn't know if Hans Zimmer was going to be on board with it. And he really wanted to do this movie. And I mean, I think a a number of the actors who had been, you know, really wanted to be on this and it certainly shows, but Hans Zimmer, he like, not only did he create sounds for a lot of those to give it that sort of off, like out of world kind of alien, quality to it but he, like they actually even created languages so that they could like wow. the same really thing, like they other... created whole languages oh that's amazing i found the soundtrack really like it's something else and i i'm curious to know what your guys's favorite parts of the soundtrack are but i have two <laughs> and I, I can't it's a tie so i love the uh throat singing that you know you get in the beginning of the movie but then when you go to seleucus secundus with the the starter car I don't know. It's just something. It's so like I don't know. It's alien almost. And then, then yeah. the uh, bagpipes. <laughs> that was charge. a really interesting uh, element that I had not expected yeah. at all and loved. I'd never thought of them as Scots, but of course, the like Caledon is a Scottish Highland. Like it makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that um, I don't. I wouldn't. I couldn't pick out a particular part. Although that throat singing is maybe the most unique element in a very unique sounding soundtrack but what i liked about the soundtrack just across the board was how it 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 set the mood for like you're displaced like there was something it wasn't like out of key or out of tune but it was out of something right like it was a it was a kind of sound a kind of music that made you feel like oh man am i I'm only like three quarters on my chair right now. I should, you know, it's like, there's just something a little off about this that mirrored how everything was a little off for our characters and, and the feel of it. And I think that that's something that is woven into the whole story of Dune is Paul trying to figure out how to make that little bit that's off, not be off anymore. And it's really tough because it's not always easy to pinpoint because it's like a million little things are happening that are affecting him and affecting the story. And for some reason, I just felt like the music, even though I liked it, it kept me off kilter just a tiny bit. 
And that put me not on edge, but it gave me an edge to feel like I really wanted to know what the next scene was going to be because I needed some sort of resolution. I don't know, like I needed some sort of even melodic resolution because I just need that next thing. And I think that that's something that this movie did so well. Oh, you're dead on. The music... The, the music was melon like the melancholy of it i think it's the nostalgia like it it, it just it, that's what it oozed is this it's all throughout it it was it was this it was an homage to mm. to the story i think that uh i mean han zimmer is like i don't think we're ever gonna have his like in our lifetime again maybe we will but that would be awesome if we did but <laughs> he's just yeah what he's able to do i'm not I'm not as good at on the music side and knowing what he's doing fully, but like he does it so well that it just becomes a part of the environment in a lot of ways for me, I think. And I think that's what I notice about his stuff is like, I notice it and it's beautiful, but I don't notice it. And it takes me out of my suspension of disbelief. Right. I'm still in, the, I feel like I'm that, that that's just a natural part of the world. It feels like. Mm-hmm. Totally. It was a great movie. So enjoyable. I totally copy you, David. I really want to watch the next one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I'm, like, glad, I'm really glad they're making it. Again, it's it's hard the... it's hard to kind of like explain or or um think about if you've never read the novel, but like this might not even be half the novel. No. <laughs> you know I mean? No, like, like there's like, so much they definitely there's st- so much to happen. This is why you could make a half hour on Caladan in the movie because like this is almost even just the first act of the book. Yeah. <laughs> is yeah. uh is the betrayal and and like the path that Paul and Jessica are on now. But of course, if you get Oscar Isaac in a movie, you got to extend it a little bit longer. <laughs> it's Yes. It's yes. Yes. Yeah, and I mean Leto, Leto again, like it's such it'd be interesting to talk to um a screenwriter about how they adapt a book to a movie because the book doesn't suffer very much, I would say, of Leto not being in it a ton. But yeah. I could see why the movie would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I could see why Cuz they're be different. They're, they're different art forms, and, and, right? And the, and the, and his presence is so crucial to Paul, but it's harder to get that in narrative in a movie. You just actually need more relationship building between the two of them and conversations, which I can't even remember how much there is of that in the book, but I'm sure there's enough. But he's like, yeah, it's just things like that that are that are um, why you can see why they had to make it certain ways. Because, yeah, he's such a hugely important character that you need in your movie a little bit longer than he was proportionally in in the book yeah. i would say so i agree that was a good decision uh any final thoughts why i think one of my favorite quotes from the movie or one favorite little you know this is a bit of a throwaway is uh when liet kinds is about like she she's getting killed she's killed by the sardaukar mm-hmm. sardaukar about to take her down and she says I only serve one master, and his name is Shai Hulud, and then she starts, like, stomping on the ground, and the worm swallows them all, and I just, like, this is so badass, but anyways. That's a little bit of part of the soul of Dune, you know? There is one, only one god. <laughs> his name is Death. <laughs> Reminds me of that scene, right? There's just, there's, like, the iconic scenes, right? Yeah. Um, I think my, my final thought is, 
it's so interesting that this conversation was so different than the last one in, in a lot of ways, yeah. which is beautiful. It just goes to show that, I mean, now we've talked about this for almost four hours, I mean, two, two three and a half together, and it doesn't feel like we've even covered everything we could talk about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Dune is probably my, if it's not, if not favorite, one of my most cherished worlds that's been created and to see someone uh, pay the respect that is due the art is always an incredible pleasure and and not just to pay it respect but to, to take their own art form to draw out uh, the actors and actresses pulling out the uh, the characters in new ways like Joseph was saying that we had seen before the music um, giving us that feeling of isolation, otherworldliness that you had talked about, Luke. And I mean, just really making a world come alive. I'm just, I'm really grateful. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that uh, someone did this and and used their time in life to to bring us something so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, really great film. A very uh, sincere adaptation of a beloved novel and um i'm excited for part two <laughs> yeah yeah well, I, me very, too and for part uh, three of this <laughs> yes exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right well a big thank you again josiah for joining this is definitely our longest bonus episode thus far <laughs> so that's good there we go so yeah josiah um thanks man appreciate it yeah thanks for joining us jose and thank you for for sharing my love of this series all of these years with me and talking about it with me <laughs> and uh and uh coming on bringing bringing life to it in my life well thank you guys for uh having me and i you know it's it was a pleasure to be on the podcast as i guess the first time that you guys had me last year and it's a pleasure to be on this bonus episode i i know you guys have a you both have other podcast projects among a lot of other projects that you guys have in your your busy lives, and I just thank you guys for all the work that you guys have put into this uh, labor of love. And Luke, I mean, this was a book that David and I both really liked over yeah. the years, and I thank you for, for sure. reading it. And it's been a lot of fun uh, talking, yeah, talking about it this time. And you know, when we had that that episode last uh, last year too, it was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, it'll it'll happen more. No problem, man. It was uh, sure the book was your and David's idea, but. Uh... I uh, I still got full value out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening to a bonus episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. And uh, this is probably inappropriate given the episode, but may the force be with you <laughs> <laughs> and with your spirit. <laughs> <laughs>